Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google, Google Play, and on Sojo.net for more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis. Visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Brenda Salter McNeil about her latest book called Becoming Brave. I love that. Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now, and her leadership in the church during the Black Lives Matter movement. Brenda Salter McNeil is Associate Professor of Reconciliation Studies at Seattle Pacific University and Director of the Reconciliation Studies Program. She's also an Associate Pastor of Preaching and Reconciliation at Quest Church in Seattle. So longtime friend, Brenda, how is your spirit these days? Well, it's great to be with you, and what a wonderful question to start with. I would say that I am uh, anchored in the Lord. That that would be my first response. I thank God that I come from a resilient people who understand uh, what it is to uh, uh, trust that God will make a way somehow, even if it's not apparent to me how that will happen. I also feel a sense of burden and concern. So it's not a Pollyannish feeling I have. There is a sense that I am very aware in my soul of the divisiveness that we are living in and the complicity of the church and continuing that and feeling very, very strongly entrenched in what seems to be two very, very polarized views about the world. And I'm concerned. My soul is concerned about those things as I see them. Mine too. Soul is concerned. Uh, Indeed. In the introduction to your new book, you start out with this. You write, Jesus showed up to the messy, frightening, beautiful community in which he was born. And he embodied love with his actions and his words. He wasn't indifferent. He wasn't numb to it all. He was present. This is what we are called to do as well. Just like Jesus, we are called to demonstrate our active participation in local community concerns and relevant social issues. Brenda, your words ring true in this moment of racial reckoning in our country. Have you seen the followers of Jesus emulate him or not? in recent days? Well, 70 million people, many of whom were white evangelicals and and others who felt that this particular form of leadership at the presidential and and, um, congressional and Senate level was something that they thought was to be continued. That concerns me. And that's not a political statement or a partisan statement. It's really my concern about what it is we want to see leaders embody. So that quote that you just um, uh, referenced is really important, that Jesus didn't just talk about a kingdom that was coming. Jesus modeled that kingdom coming. And that kingdom was not divisive. That kingdom brought those who were on the margins in. Um, And so all of those things were critical to the embodiment of a God, of a Christ who would go into Samaria, who would speak to a woman, who would be ostracized for his um, ability to uh, set free and liberate those who society had cast aside. I look for that in Christianity. I look for followers of Jesus to follow Jesus. And that's what bothers me. When I don't see that, it's not right, left, or center. It's who are you following and to where are you going? Because if the kingdom is made up of people of every tribe and every nation, every language, and every ethnic group, we cannot condone things that do not include all people. I like to remind uh, our fellow believers sometimes it's don't go right, don't go left, go deeper. And go deeper means if you're a Christian, following Jesus. And as as simple or as obvious or as clear as it ought to be, Jesus 
Jesus raises these questions and prompts these questions, and we often need to ask, did he mean it? <laughs> did he mean what he said? And if he did, what does that mean for us? So starting reclaiming Jesus is where we all are. And uh, those 70 million people, uh, I don't know how many of them were white evangelicals, but a lot of them were. And a lot of them were. Uh, and I just, you know, the answer isn't just to, uh, you know, have easy answers, but to say, what does it mean uh, for a conversion, really? A conversion back to Jesus. What does it mean to go back to Jesus when it comes to racism? Yeah. And Jim, let me jump in and tell you, as a college professor, I really want our listeners to understand that this is not just about black and brown young people or or people who feel disenfranchised by the vote. I am finding more young white college students who are disenchanted with the church because of what they see from their parents and their grandparents and the people all their lives in churches that they looked up to. And they are really grappling with how does my my family continue to make this okay. And so we're losing a generation. I'm talking now to white listeners. We're losing a generation of young people who do not want to be involved in the church or have anything to do with Christianity because of what they've seen modeled and embodied in the people that they have looked up to all their lives. This is concerning. I'm glad you raised that as a professor at Indeed a Christian college where you see these young people and what you and I know is the results of this election. And as we sort them out, uh, we're going to be, are going to be a test of whether black church leaders and pastors even want to work with white Christians and churches anymore. But the other thing you raise is so important. The whole generation, multiracial generation, young people are really deciding where they're going to have anything to do with the church going forward. It's a whole generational question test for whether there is, is even a future for this church going forward. So I'm glad you raised that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I defy anybody to to dispute the fact that church attendance and church participation by young people, particularly white young people, denominations are closing because they don't have enough of a future of people who want to invest themselves in the life of the church. And when I talk to young students, particularly white Christian students, they just don't believe us anymore. They've hear, they've heard politicians lie. They've heard pastors lie. They've heard their parents lie and disappoint them. They have seen so much hypocrisy that they don't know who to believe anymore. And they therefore don't look to us as role models for them. And that should concern all of us. Indeed. In your book, you write about the shift you make from a focus on reconciliation to justice and truth-telling. Now, I noticed that shift in, in you at our Faith Leaders Retreat in Ferguson four months after the shooting of Michael Brown. Um, uh, in Publishers Weekly, you say, your quote is saying, instead of reconciliation being solely focused on getting to know and understand people of color, there must be a new focus for white people, one that is directed at understanding, unpacking, and confronting their own whiteness. And you reflected on that time in Ferguson. I remember you in the middle of that conversation with those young leaders, the earliest Black Lives Matter leaders, some of them saying, it was that night, that time we had with those young people. I realized, I really understood how disappointed young people of color are, had become with the church. They experienced us as not simply irrelevant, but on the wrong side of justice. And now you're saying you find that, that true about uh, young white, people as well. So that's a powerful word. So that that Ferguson moment that I could see all this churning inside of you. Uh, what what was it like being there with those young people at that time, right after the shooting of Michael Brown? Yeah, I'm not sure I'll ever forget it. It really was a life changing for me. And I don't use that in a hyper, hyperbolic way. It was very, um, it was a turning point for me because this is what they said, and I'm almost quoting, and, and this is important to say out loud because not only did white evangelicals vote for this current administration to continue, also black males voted in larger numbers for this kind of 
uh, a continuation of this type of leadership. And we've got to name that. We've got to say that. And so this is what young Black students said. Now, these are the people who are in the streets, risking their lives, taking uh, a stance for, for justice and what they saw as inhumane treatment of a body left in the middle of the street. And when we come in as clergy who say we're concerned, they have little to no respect for us. They, they're not disrespectful, but they're not trying to be kind. They're really saying exactly how they feel without any uh, uh, extra trappings or niceties on top of it. And they said this, when it comes to the church, they said, we hate your misogyny. We hate your hypocrisy. We hate your exclusion of the LGBTQ community. They said, it appears, it seems like you try harder to keep people out than to let people in. And when people name your sin as a church, and we have the audacity to say that they are the problem, they are literally saying to us, we've watched you. We see how you treat women in the black church. We see how you exclude people who ha are, 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 have sexual, sexual identities different than what you would see as norm, but you keep them out of the church. Not only do you not have empathy and concern, you literally exclude them. We see how you say one thing and do another. We see your hypocrisy. We see your complicity with injustice. And we will just go ahead without you because we don't trust you. And when you hear that kind of a critique from young people, they're telling us a couple things. We're watching you. We're not just hearing what you say. We're looking at what you do. And there is a gap. And if you want us to ever trust you again, you're going to have to begin to practice what you preach. And that's what made Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. different. That's why people, young people, college students followed him into the streets and listened to his moral leadership and his theological perspective because he embodied what he was calling other people to do. And that's the gap in the church right now. And I'm very, very, very passionately, as you can hear in my voice, concerned about this because we are tarnishing the credibility of the gospel. I remember they also said, um, we're not anti-church as some people have accused us of being. Uh, we're certainly, uh, <laughs> we're not anti-God. Well, we have been unchurched by the churches in our neighborhoods, that's for sure. But we, we want to be with you. We want to work with you. But then they said this, we got one question. What risks are you willing to take? And that just went to our hearts. What risks? Because as you say, they were risking their lives in the streets before uh, they, they were, uh, their, their Black Lives Matter was an international icon. They were risking their lives every night in the streets. And they wanted to know what we were going to risk for what we say we believe. It was a powerful moment for an awful lot of us in that room. Um, and uh, I was I was watching, you know, our just our reactions and feeling our reactions. And I remember I could just feel stuff churning inside of you. Uh, you had been known for years as a uh, even in your titles as a professor, uh, as a professor of reconciliation. And a lot of people really looked to you and respected you for that. And were always wanting uh, to hear about reconciliation. But what you're saying right now and what you were feeling that night in, in your book, it's, it's about what reconciliation requires. Uh, and tell us how, you've, how that's churned inside of you and how that time was so pivotal and how you have gotten to this, I would say, even deeper place with what that really means. Yeah, thanks for asking. And you're right, it is a deeper place. It's not like I've ever been shy. So when people say, when weren't you brave? <laughs> we thought you always have been brave. I, I have been. I've always been prophetic. I've always stood in the calling of God on my life. And so that's not different, but there is a deeper, a deepness that has, has emerged. And that deepness for me That deepness for me has been informed by understanding that my attempt to be a minister of reconciliation, particularly in white dominant culture spaces, meant that I uh, avoided uh, being accused of having 
a, a hidden motive or agenda. Most people in the early days thought that this message of reconciliation, particularly racial reconciliation, had some liberal leftist agenda that I was trying to bring in with it, right? That uh, who, who, who would say that they're not for racial reconciliation? It just sounds bad to say that you're not for that. So everybody would say, yes, 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 of course. But they feared that I was going to bring in stuff that they thought was going to be controversial. Like I'd, I'd bring up sexuality. I'd bring up uh, abortion and or or pro-choice or pro-life. I, you know, they were concerned that I had some hidden, dark, left, left, left-leaning agenda that I was going to bring in with racial reconciliation. And I don't have an agenda. I don't have a hidden motive. I never have. I still don't. I lived literally, and this is not a bragging thing. I grew up in a Black Pentecostal church, and I was raised with people who loved God. And they sincerely believe that what you understand you're supposed to live. And that's really all I've been trying to do for all these years is to live what I believe. And so I toned down anything that could perceived be perceived as a hidden motive. So I didn't talk about sexuality. I didn't talk about abortion because the very words bring up a, a, a reactivity in your audience that I was trying to avoid. However, now that I have begun to say things like we can't say that we are pro-life and not care about children being separated from their parents at the border. How dare you suggest that you care about babies and babies have been taken from their parents and over 600 of them still cannot be reunited with their birth parents. That is appalling to me. It breaks my heart. As a mother, I can only imagine the anguish of people literally not knowing where their infant is for the last two years. Come on. To be pro-life is to care about that. To be pro-life is to care about kids who are still drinking lead-poisoned water in Flint, Michigan. That cares about children. That cares about babies. And now that I say things like that, Jim, one dear white man who looked to be about in his 40s, I did not meet him. He said this on social media, so I can only go by the picture that came with his his profile. But he said this, and I quote, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses unquote. And and what he was basically saying, as long as you talked about the Bible and didn't make it relevant to how we live, how we vote, how we care, who we show up for, we liked you. We could take a little prophetic tongue lashing from the Bible. We just don't want you to call out our hypocrisy and our lack of, of care around these issues that really impact people's lives. And that's been the deepness that people are hearing from me now. Indeed. Um, uh, you said in an article in Christian Today, you, you put that this way, um, the reconciliation movement was ignoring the prophetic voices of the non-white and non-male protesters, teachers, journalists, artists, and preachers who come to get our attention and inform us about the reality of what's going on in people's lives. I thought that was right to the point of who we're listening to and who we're not listening to. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And that's part of what we have to do. The voices at the margin, the people whose lives are actually literally being destroyed by these policies, those are the people whose voices we've got to listen to. And we can't keep debating going back and forth. Somebody says Black Lives Matter. Those kids that we talked to that night, they were just simply saying that shouldn't happen to anybody. You know, it shouldn't. Nobody's daughter should be home in bed and 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 she, you know, in the middle of the night get killed. Breonna Taylor, that should not happen. As I've mentioned, I'm a mother. I have two young adult children and they live in another state than I do. And when they call and say, hey, mom, we're back, made it home safely. I, I go to bed. I'm good. I'm like, great, you're home. And I can only imagine what Brianna Taylor's mother must have felt when she thought her daughter was home safe in bed to later discover that in the middle of the night she's shot in her own home. Come on. That should not be a debatable issue issue for Christians. That's just inhumane. A guy, my son used to be on the track team. So Ahmad Aubrey goes for a jog. He sees a house under construction. And I don't know, we will never know. But 
who gets shot to death by people in a neighborhood for stopping on a jog to look at a house under construction. Now as a black mother, when my son says to me, hey mom, I jogged three miles today, I'm getting in shape. I get scared instead of being able to be happy for him. That's what we mean when we say black lives matter. And every single person who then retorts, what well, doesn't all lives matter? It breaks my heart. It ain't makes me angry. I want to say to them, shut up, because we do not have time to go round and about in circles with you around this same old debate. All we want you to hear is that as parents, as black people, as folks who believe that their kids have the right to go on a jog and not get killed, we're just saying that that matters. And Christians shouldn't be debating that they should say, of course you do. Now, how do we stand in solidarity with you about that? And this week, as we as we all saw, um, Cori Bush, Missouri's first black female representative, um, the newest member, uh, one of the newest members of the Congress, uh, she had a mask on that said Breonna Taylor, right? And, um, and a lot of other Congress people said, oh, is that your name, Breonna Taylor? And this happened again and again and again with white members of Congress, white Republican members mostly. And they didn't know who Breonna Taylor was. They didn't know who she was. And it was shocking to Congresswoman Cori Bush. And she has now said, uh, they're going to know who Breonna Taylor was. They're going to learn who Breonna Taylor was and what she means. And that's why I'm here. So the the astonishment or lack of understanding or uh, to me, as uh, one of those scriptures that, that you probably quoted night or two is in Corinthians where it says, when, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. So when the black body of Christ uh, as parents are feeling everything you just said about your own kids and the fear of them going outside or riding a bike or, or just, just, uh, you know, the first time your kid, kid says, I just got my license. I want to take a trip. Uh, and, and the fear that's in every black parent's heart is not even acknowledged or understood by white parents in the body of Christ. That's not suffering with, that's not even acknowledging or recognizing or believing the experience of black parents in the body of Christ. And that that's, these are not just political issues or partisan, as you said so well. These are these are theological, they're body of Christ issues, they're relationship issues. Do we love and care about the suffering uh, of our brothers and sisters of color, or do we not even, even want to understand what's going on? That's what is so deep in all this, in this post-election conversation now that we have to have. Yeah, very much so. And Jim, I want to tell you something, because I want to broaden this from a black and white discussion uh, to, to tell you how I came to that. And it also has to do with you. Uh, some time ago, you invited me through Sojo to come and do um, uh, a lobby Congress on immigration reform many years ago now. And my thought was, that's not my area of expertise. Um now, know this, and most people who know me know that I love Latino people. I do. I speak Spanish, not fluently, but one day in heaven, <laughs> by God's grace. But I went to Costa Rica, and I went to Costa Rica for a month. My family gave me a summer, a gift to go to language school, to immerse myself with the hopes that I would come back home fluently speaking Spanish, because I say a lot, yo aprendiendo hablar español. I'm learning to speak Spanish. People know that I work hard at it. And my friends challenged me and said, look, if you really want to speak Spanish, you just need to go someplace, immerse yourself. And that's what it's going to take. So I went to Costa Rica. And uh, on my way back home from that trip, uh, or that experience, it wasn't a trip, it was a life changing immersion for me to live with a family, speak Spanish as much as I could every single day, and, and, and be a part of a culture unlike my own, right? On my way back, coming into the country, there's two different lines to come back home, one for residents, and the other for non-residents. So U.S. citizens and residents and then non-residents. And both lines were extremely diverse. Lots of ethnic, racial, it seemed international diversity in both of those lines. As I looked around at those two different groups, I thought to myself, wow, we already have enough diversity. And I could sense the Holy Spirit check me in the middle of that line. My thinking was off. And God said to me by the Holy Spirit, watch your scarcity thinking. 
because it's that type of thinking. We already have enough. That's the kind of stuff that then begins to believe that we can't share. We can't be generous. We can't take in more people. And that's what leads to building walls. That's what leads to me and mine kind of thinking. And God said to me, standing in that line, I told you I'm Pentecostal, so I believe God still speaks. And I felt like the spirit said to me, do you believe I have enough for everybody? And I whispered, yes, Lord. I heard God say, do you believe I want for everybody else what I want for you? And I said, yes, Lord. And as a result of that conversation in that line with my God, I became convicted to this one truth that is now a guiding principle for me. You can't say you love people and not care about the policies that impact their lives. And that was why I came back home from that trip, contacted Sojo and let you know that I would be there to lobby Congress for for reform around immigration. Because if I love my Latina and Latino brothers and sisters, then I can't say I don't care about the, the policies that are being made that impact their lives and their children. And so I came and you taught me what I was supposed to say. You gave me my instructions with all the other people. And off I went to my congressperson's office and other offices to talk about my personal investment and solidarity with my brothers and sisters who are fighting the fight for immigration reform. It's a great story. And the word you used there was expertise. That's not my expertise. That's an interesting word. Because if we listen to Jesus in Matthew 25, he might say our expertise comes from our proximity to those people you're talking about, the proximity to those who aren't who are thirsty because they're not getting their, their water in Flint, just north of my hometown of Detroit, or, or those people who come, who are in Guatemala and, and they're facing uh, can't grow food on their land because of climate change and because armed people come and take their boys to be soldiers and threaten to rape their daughters and they just strip themselves of everything uh, naked in that text uh, the hungry the naked the thirsty and, and they come to america where they think they're going to get asylum and they get their kids as you just said thrown into cages uh and then then i hear you know even suburban women evangelical voters in in the parking lots of their churches with bumper stickers saying, I care about life in the womb, but also life at the border, as you said so well. And it's it's our exper- expertise is in proximity to those whom Jesus calls the least of these. And how it's not just uh, uh, one group or another, it's those who are vulnerable that he says the ones who are marginalized. If you walk to them you walk to me <laughs> and that's the more most radical thing i ever read as a as a young organizer in in college you you write a chapter i love this in the book on lament lament because that's where we have to go deeper i think and you write lament functions as a public acknowledgement of injustice and a space for the oppressor to release their guilt through public confession that leads to healing and transformation now, in this difficult 2020 year that we're still going through, um, what examples have you seen of public lament in 2020? How can we or must we go deeper into lament before we put forward two easy solutions uh, to fix, you know, fix the problem, as some people say? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, thank you for even raising that that this is a part of the reconciliation process. Mordecai in the story that I referenced as the um, biblical narrative for my book is outside of the palace gates, weeping and, and unable to be consoled and, and refusing to be consoled because there are things that literally should call for us to cry out Lament is not just grieving and it's not just grievances. It's literally the, the, the anguish of the soul in public spheres and private spheres that acknowledges that something has died and that something that has died should be acknowledged. There is a dead body here and it requires the truth telling that says something, someone has died here and we are 
devastated at what has died. So what we're seeing in, in our country right now, this is lamentable. Something has died. Democracy is on life support. And we should all, regardless of our race, our color, our age, our, our, our denominational affiliation or faith tradition, it does not matter what political party we represent. Civility has died. Truth has died. And we should all say, good God. We refuse to be consoled in a world where we're not even sure if what we're hearing from the highest levels of our government can be trusted. That should cause us all to put on sackcloth and ashes and to weep and wail for a country that we could say at least we can agree to disagree. That's just fine. But at least we should have the the common uh, sense of 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 justice and and righteousness that calls us all to want us to tell the truth. I wouldn't want people to listen to me if they could not trust that I was telling the truth. Now, can we disagree on what we see as the truth? Yes. Can you say that from my point of view, I see that differently? Absolutely, of course. But you should not think that I don a pulpit and I am literally lying. Truth has died. You just said truth has died. Uh, in your chapter on healing, um, you write that we in the United States won't allow ourselves a chance to tell the truth about our past. And without that truth telling us, we have, without that, I'm sorry, we in the United States won't allow ourselves the chance to tell the truth about our past. Without that truth telling, we have very little hope of achieving the reconciliation we so desperately need. So how can we live by John eight thirty two? How can we live by that text, which says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth and freedom are linked. And it seems to me that, that, that too many Christians, white Christians in particular, have a long way to go in this regard because if the truth sets us free, the lies the denial of truth, the death of truth, keeps us in bondage. So what does that text do? That's exactly right. That's true. <laughs> well, well, thank you for referencing it because it's become a guiding principle for me. Uh, and that's why we went to Ferguson, because we were hearing a lot of things from the news media, from all different points of view, people who, you know, showed news clips of violence. And we didn't know, is this just, you know, uh, 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 riots in the street? What's actually going on here? And as you mentioned, it was at the beginning of this movement. And we tried to get as close to it, to the truth of what was happening happening for ourselves. So I would say, yes, indeed, the truth will make us free. And that is going to be critical to getting close enough to the truth to be able to know for ourselves what is factual. We have to talk to people who have had COVID. Yesterday, a dear, dear, dear brother, friend of mine, he happens to be white. He's a, a pastor of a church. He stood in line with his family for five hours trying to get a COVID test. Five hours. So when people say the testing is readily available, this man has got a PhD and he stood in line for five hours trying to get a test. So no, it's not true <laughs> that testing is readily available. That's just not true. And I'll tell you something else. Uh, there's so many books that have run through my mind and I'm not supposed to talk about other people's books, but I want to say this out loud. Uh, Prophetic Lament by Sung Chan Ra has been a really helpful book and I think people should read it because we got to learn how to grieve and we've got to learn how to sit in it and not get through it so quickly, not to try to make nice too quickly. I think we need to stay at the funeral for a longer time and really grapple with the death and really grieve it till we feel it. And the other book is The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And that's because the truth is, we've always been this way, Jim. This is not new. 
voter suppression, people counting and uh, how many jelly beans in a jar. It never went away because we'll never tell the truth about it. It just keeps morphing itself into a new fangled uh, uh, iteration of itself as generations keep going on. And so as I take my students through that book, Color of Compromise, white students cry and they say, Dr. Brenda, how is it that I never heard this before? And it's because we have revisionistic history that doesn't tell the truth. We just don't tell the truth. I was going through, I'll stop here because I know I'm preaching, but I was going... I was going through the Legacy Museum uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, or Birmingham, Alabama, that uh, Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative, I recommend it to every and anybody who really wants to know the truth of our racial narrative here in this country. And I stopped at one of the exhibits, and I was shocked to learn that it was a prerequisite to be a Christian to get into the Ku Klux Klan. Did you hear that? It wasn't that you happened to be a Christian and you were in the Ku Klux Klan, you couldn't get into the Klan unless you were a Christian, hence the cross burning. They were doing that for Jesus. They were lynching my ancestors for Jesus. And so don't tell me now that I should somehow be calm and nice and understanding about these people with guns going to the governor's offices in Michigan with looking like a militia, and I'm supposed to understand that? No, that scares me. And it looks like the clan in a new form. And unless we call a thing a thing, we're going to stay in this revolving door indefinitely. And I have no interest in doing that. And you said, you said in an interview with Religion News Service, that silence is violence. Silence is violence. And that's what you're speaking about. Not to tell the truth. Uh, Not to tell the truth. And to not just not tell it, but cover it up and hide it and 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 not even tell young people those students who you taught teach that they never heard this they never heard this in all their great education uh and to not tell the truth to be silent about the truth leads in fact to violence exactly exactly and 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 so i'm angry i'm just angry because i love the church I love who we are supposed to be. And it really, truly angers me that the church has aligned itself so much with nationalism and white supremacy and dominance that we have lost our ability to to speak the truth because we have been given the truth. We've been entrusted with the message, the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's supposed to be what we look like. And when we don't do that, when we abdicate our responsibility to be people who point people to the way, the truth, and the life, what 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 are we doing? What are we what are we here for? Is this about a, a win-win or some a zero-sum game of win winners and losers? That's not the church. That's not the gospel. And it really does anger me that we have so many Christian people who have lost their way and have made their faith and their patriotism one and the same. You know, uh let's that's indeed the truth. And part of it is what people do with that when they hear the truth. You mentioned this before. Uh, In an interview with The New Yorker, you said that for decades you didn't talk about racist policies, as you mentioned before, because you thought it would make you seem too partisan, partisan, political. When I was a kid, you know, growing up in Detroit, like I've told you, and I was going back and forth between where we lived in white Detroit and black Detroit, uh, both for work and and even for church, when I discovered the black churches who know, knew all about us, but we were never told about them. I got home one day from one of those visits and an elder in my church took me aside and he said, son, you have to understand, Christianity has nothing to do with racism because that's political and our faith is personal. And I remember that's the night, I was a teenage kid, and that's the night that I just left in my head and my heart because of this thing that was ripping me up inside uh, had nothing to do with my faith, <laughs> then I didn't want to have anything to do with it either. And, and when they make it political and partisan, that's a way for them to just so personalize their religion that they ignore and deny uh, the truth. And so how do you 
what do you say to people who are pastors? I hear all the time. Uh, I'm afraid this will make me sound partisan or political or taking one side or the other. How, how do you respond to people who usually white people who share that fear? Yeah, this is my um, this is my gut reaction and, and probably my last book book plug because I thank you so very much for helping people to know that becoming brave is here and and I am proud of this work because I poured my heart and soul into it. But the question you're asking now has to do with discipleship. And there's a, a a pastor in Chicago. His name is David Swanson, and he's written a book called Rediscipling the White Church. And I really do highly recommend it because it's an issue of discipleship. This notion that um, pastors are f- frightened to preach about this. It's not just that they're going to sound partisan; they're going to lose their jobs. That's what they're afraid of. If we want to right, call, if right. we want to tell the you're truth, right. that's what that's we're right. afraid of. And I'm telling you, mm-hmm. they will. Some people, the risk we talked about earlier in this podcast, this is a risk. This is the Esther moment. This is the, do I keep silent or do I preach what I know to be true? And when we look out there and we see tithers and longtime members, and we know that they're not going to like it, that's what causes pastors to tone it down. And I'm asking everybody, I'm on this podcast trying my best to be Mordecai, and I'm coming to say, if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family, i.e. your church, your denomination, your Christian college campus will perish. Who knows? Maybe you've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. You may lose some of them, but I promise you, you will gain another generation of people who trust God and believe in the church and the future of the church will happen if we take the risk to believe that God's truth will make us free. So whoever I'm talking to, we have discipled white Christians into believing that Christianity is comfortable. It is not. Christianity challenges us at the very core of who we are, and it makes us choose to follow Jesus when our knees are knocking and our teeth are chattering and we're holding on for dear life, asking God to help us to take another step of faith. And that's what Christianity, real Christianity feels like that. And I beg us to start preaching like that. What you're kind of saying is that pastors, white pastors in particular, need to love their people enough to preach the gospel to them. <laughs> We've got to love the people enough to preach the gospel to them, which in fact is what's going to set them free. Because if, if racism, if the whole idea of racism is basically a lie and, uh, and an idolatry, what do idols do? They separate us from God. So whiteness uh, isn't just a sociological problem, as some say. It separates us from God. It's a lie and an idol that separates. So these pastors shouldn't ask, what are they doing to help? <laughs> but how are they going to set their own people free from the idolatry of whiteness that has captured their lives and their faith? This is what pastors ought to do, right? Set people free. Let's end with the students thing, because I love when you said the students that you talk to. I'm really encouraged by, by I've got a class at Georgetown this spring called uh, Faith, Race, and, and Politics 2020. And it's a very diverse class. And I, it's, 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 it's the, what the students say about losing faith in, in religion and in, in congregations and whether they ever go back again is the question, but also they're also full of courage, <laughs> these students. And, and I, I get it. It's the best part of my week because um, the conversations, uh, Eddie Glaude talks about the need for a third founding of America in his new book called Begin Again about James Baldwin. And last week I, I had them each, okay, take an issue and explain what it would mean to refound America on that system. <laughs> and they just went off, you know, education, housing, and uh, food, uh, every, everything. Police and criminal justice, for sure. We've been talking about that all semester. And yet they just believe, um, and my two boys, they're at, you know, one just finished college and one is about to, to go. And dinnertime conversations are about, okay, we've got to completely change this or that. You know, and and I get tremendous amount of courage 
from their courage. And it's like, are they going to do this with or without the churches? I mean, they're not waiting for the churches to decide to do this. They're going to do it. A new generation, they're going to do this. And they're going to do it <laughs> with or without uh, those who call themselves people of faith. So I get tremendous encouragement and from their courage every week and what they, every generation has to decide what is no longer tolerable for them and what's no longer unable to be changed. And this generation is, is deciding that and we're going to either stand with them and help, help to stand alongside and, and, and offer the, you know, the, the spiritual sustenance that you and I know that movements need, or they're going to go on without us. They're not even going to bother worrying about us anymore or talking to us. They're going to go on and do it without us. So I, I find those student conversations uh, discouraging when they talk about their experience with religion and the church, but really encouraging when I hear the courage they want and they want to embrace a faith that changes the world. If it doesn't, they're not interested. Yeah, I totally agree. And they give me joy. They bring me joy and energy. I like their snarkiness. I like their relevance. They make me better. And so I 100% conclude with what you conclude with, that those young people are totally motivational in my life. And they help me to stay uh, as a learning sage. They look up to me for what I know but I also thank God that I continue to learn from them. And so if I had a closing word, I would take us back where we began in Ferguson. You'll recall that we were getting ready to leave on our last day and uh, the young activists uh, who we had the night before said, we promise we're gonna do better, we promise we care, et cetera, et cetera. That next day, the decision not to indict the officers who used the chokehold that killed Eric Garner in New York um, came down and we learned it while we were in our final session. And um, yep, and we tried to lament and cry and one young man really fell apart and we were trying to console him. And then in the midst of that, we get a text and that text comes through one of our colleagues, a cell phone to us. And it tells us that they're going to go to the courthouse at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And they wanted to ask us one simple but profound question. Are you coming or not? And in that moment, all of us had to make a decision. We had flights to catch. That was our final session. We had already made our, our arrangements to get back to the airport. And they were basically calling us out. So last night, you all said, as clergy, you care so much that you really give a damn. Now, today is the chance for you to get to show it. Are you coming or not? And that's where I want to end this podcast for us. That's the question that's still on the table. Are you coming or not? And so it was amazing to watch us find ourselves in the middle of a protest because I had no intention whatsoever of being in a protest when I signed up to go on this uh, on this round table to Ferguson. But I can remember Shane Claiborne in the middle of the of the protest with a with his suitcase, with a rollerboard suitcase, with his hand in the air, fist in the air. Shane Claiborne only would do this. No justice, no peace, pulling a suitcase in the middle of a protest. But I can tell you for me, I wept through the whole thing. I saw young white college students who was in the middle of the protest. I saw older Mennonite people, men and women standing there in silent protest and solidarity with one little white sheet that said Black Lives Matter, just standing there. Lord have mercy. Wow, what a powerful thing. And then, Jim, I don't think you know this, but as I was weeping and looking around and trying to get my bearings, I saw this young who I thought was white. She was not actually, but a young woman who came and saw me crying she took my hand in her hand and balled her hand over mine and we made a fist and then she punched my hand with hers up in the air and she said from Palestine to Ferguson and I thought oh my gosh because what she was saying is that the whole world is here with you my guess is that she was probably an international student maybe at WashU and she was saying that what you're standing for here we're standing for there what you care about here, we care about there. What you're going through here, we're going through there. So this conversation is not a national conversation we're having. It's a global conversation. And the whole world is watching and waiting to see if the church is going to come or not.
And my prayer is that our answer is going to be a resounding, yes, we're here. We cannot not come. When that message came, uh, we were in this room and one of the young men who had given us a tour, uh, toured all around the city, uh, we got in close to, he was with us all the time. He began to wail, just a wail. They even had the video, they even had the video and it still doesn't matter. Even had the video and it doesn't matter. And he was wailing. And we were, of course, want to comfort the wailing, right? That's what we do as pastors. So we're being comforting. And then the word came, don't just comfort us. Come with us. Show up. Be there. In a protest that we hadn't planned or organized and didn't know what to expect and barricades and anger and passion. And, 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 and we did. We literally, with our suitcases in hand, did. And that was the call. Don't just comfort. Don't just be the reconcilers but show up, turn up, and come with us. So could you close us with a prayer about that for showing up? Uh, like you first said at the very beginning, Jesus showed up. He showed up. Are we going to show up at this critical moment where the whole world is watching to see if the followers of Jesus show up? Could you pray for us? Amen. Absolutely. Let's pray together, my siblings all over who listen now. We pray this in one voice. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Melt us. Mold us. Fill us. And use us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us so that as we hear the resounding question in this generation being asked of us, will you come or not? May we have the courage of Esther to respond with faith and say with courage, if we perish, we perish. We will stand for the kingdom of God, trusting God and believing that God has a will and a kingdom that will indeed be evidenced on earth. We pray this in the mighty name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, and all God's people said together, amen. Will you come or not? That's the question. Thank you for joining us, Brenda. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. To hear more from Brenda, follow her on Twitter at RevDocBrenda, at RevDocBrenda. Brenda, and check out her new book. Don't just check it out. Read it. Becoming Brave. <laughs> We're all becoming braver. She wants to help us become brave. Become Becoming Brave. Finding the courage to pursue racial justice now. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter if you like at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you.